This is Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast with John Bacon. This is the place where people from all walks of life share their anxiety stories to remind you that you are not alone. If you have an anxiety story you'd like to share, contact us at anxietycanada.com slash ouranxietystories. My name is John Bateman, and you're listening to Our Anxiety Stories, the Anxiety Canada podcast. Today, I'm talking to Chloe Grande. She's a Canadian mental health blogger, writer, and speaker. Having been in eating disorder recovery for 10 plus years, she knows the importance of speaking out about this deadly illness and hopes people will learn from her story and experiences. Apart from her eating disorder advocacy, Chloe also loves reading, yoga, and cats. Welcome, Chloe. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad to have you here. Uh, cats give me anxiety. So, you know, I, I don't think we <laughs> no. need to cover that, but that's okay. We, I, I've got four. So that just, that probably says it all. Um, I want to kick off this interview as I kick off all my interviews by asking you the seemingly simple yet surprisingly complicated question. Um, Chloe, what's your anxiety story? My anxiety story is a rocky one. I grew up struggling with an eating disorder. And so I think for a lot of my life, that eating disorder so, sort of overshadowed a lot of other underlying mental health challenges and struggles. And it really wasn't until the pandemic and lockdown hit that I realized how bad my social anxiety had been and that it in fact had been brewing in the background, but was overshadowed by my eating disorder. So fortunately, at that time when I was seeking help for my eating disorder relapse, which again, one of the challenges of the pandemic, um, it was a therapist who pointed out, you know, I, I think you may also have some social anxiety here going on. Mm. And once I was able to piece those apart, of course, there's a lot of overlap between the two illnesses and how they present. Um, then I've been really able to recognize how much it's affected my life and impacted my work, my relationships, so it, it's something I've come pretty far to do. And even being on this podcast <laughs> makes yeah. me very nervous, but well, yeah, I, for sure. I know yeah. it's something that is challenging my social anxiety in every aspect. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we're engaging in some exposure therapy right now. And uh, yeah, I, uh, so what I want to, you know, quickly, you know, get into, I guess, you know, my question is, before I ask you a question about, you know, directly about the eating disorder, do you have an idea of like a, of which came first? Like, do you, do you feel like you had some kind of anxiety problem issue first and then that led to an eating disorder or was it vice versa? Do you have any sense of that? I don't think I recognized or knew what anxiety was. I thought, especially with social anxiety too, sometimes there's a lot of misconceptions there. It's like, oh, someone who is a loner and just wants to be alone mm. um, or, is, or it gets mistaken or used in the sense of like, oh, they're, they're introverted or they're shy. Um, so those are all terms that I resonated with growing up. Um, and so I, I really did know what it was, but I think looking back in retrospect, the anxiety was definitely there and then sort of grew and grew <laughs> yeah, yeah, as yeah. I became more independent. And, um, yeah, a lot of those, those safety behaviors that I had being with my family, you know, sort of hiding behind my mom as I grew older, For those sure, things yeah. were stripped away and you sort of step into your own skin and recognize, oh, wait a second, there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely been there. Um, and so you, so did you, you didn't have a sense of physical symptoms of anxiety necessarily. 
like, you know, in terms of, you know, we've upset stomach or, you know, anger or sadness or whatever, or, or whatever physical symptom might pop, pop up from it. The biggest one was sleep. I had a lot of trouble going to sleep and just right. like re- replay the events of the day. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> rumination, rumination. Yes. Gotta love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So good. Especially at night. And uh, I thought it was no, I, I just didn't know that that was something not everyone had to deal with, honestly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, maybe you can, uh, to dive in, maybe you, if you don't mind, give me an idea of what, you know, you in particular, I'm sure you've done a lot of research on eating disorders. And I know it's eating disorders are very complicated and there's many different shapes and kind. Um, but from your perspective, how did your eating disorder present itself? Like, what did it look like for you on a day-to-day basis? Mm-hmm. And that's exactly it. They're, they're really complicated mental illnesses. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it does look different for every single person. And I think it's important to understand too, just my personality growing up being very perfectionistic, um, competing in some aesthetic sports, dance, gymnastics, those types of things, um, being really, really hard on myself. I think that's a quality that folks with eating disorders um, kind of tends to go across the spectrum, but also at that same time, having very low self-esteem, feeling very self-conscious about my appearance and really feeling deeply unfulfilled in terms of my appearance and thinking that if I could somehow control a certain aspect of it and that element of control came through my food intake, then I would somehow feel better, more successful. And of course, um, that was the opposite of what happened. So restriction just led to me feeling more tired. I wasn't able to do the activities I loved doing as much. I was isolating myself a lot more. So fortunately I did have some really wonderful supports uh, within the sport of gymnastics. And it was my coaches that intervened. They were the ones that, that noticed the signs and that's when I got uh, professional help. In terms of that gymnastics, a lot of pressure in that. And so your coaches were aware at that time that this was a, was an issue. Is that, is this something that you think is prevalent within that sport? I, I can't blame gymnastics for causing the eating disorder. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. for certain. And, you know, unfortunately I think any athlete has this added pressure on being very conscious of their body and mm. their size and their mm. shape, et cetera. For sure. So it was probably top of mind for the coaches and I'm sure they'd seen it with other gymnasts. Mm. Um, so yeah, I'm very grateful. I think they were aware of the signs and how it presents. And I think when you're sick with an eating disorder, you don't know what's happening. Like your, your view is so distorted. Your brain is starved. Like you're really not thinking clearly. So right, right. it was a complete shock to me when they said they were concerned. I thought, you know, I... I was doing nothing wrong. So you didn't really know that, that you in quotes had something or you, you were, you know, you, you, you had a, a eating disorder or a mental health issue at that point. That's exactly it. I had no idea. Well, that's really interesting. So how, how did that feel when that was presented to you? You know, how, what were the mechanics of that? You know, when they sat you down and, and then, and then what was the process after that happened? Mm-hmm. So much anger actually thinking back almost like insulting like oh how dare you think I have an eating disorder that Mm. and at the time too I think um my awareness of eating disorders was based on I didn't really have social media but I saw magazines so I thought of celebrities like 
the Olsen twins. Yeah, um, yeah. And that was my idea of what someone with an eating disorder looked and acted like. Right. And I, I felt very ashamed and almost like disgusted. It's like, oh, that's, that's not me. Um, I, I'm mm-hmm. very healthy. And this idea of health, I think was a big driving factor behind some of the behaviors. And of course I was really hurting my health, but denial was just another really, really um, big thing when I was confronted and it just, it it took time and many conversations um, for me to piece apart myself from the eating disorder, because I think the two just became all bunched up and jumbled together that I Uh, couldn't separate it. Of course, I don't know how, you know, with any mental health illness, it's like, you know, the desire is to, you know, for me is to have, you know, have it separate, you know, oh, anxiety isn't a part of me. Um, it took me so many years to realize that it's a fundamental part of me, whether I like it or not. Mm-hmm. And, and then, you know, above and beyond that, how to, um, for lack of a better term, uh, use it for good rather than evil, you know, you like it, not, not, not you let not allow it to hurt me, but allow it to inform me, allow it to inform mm-hmm. who I am. So when you when you after you had that, after you kind of came to terms with it, uh, what was the process for you? You know, did you go into counseling? Did you go to group? Did you go to a clinic? How, how did it work for you from that point in terms of a path to to feeling better? Right. I like that you said come to terms because I think you know, even when I was past the denial stage, it was still secret for probably 10 years. Is that Um, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. and I was 15 years old when I was first diagnosed. And so what that looked like is, um, when the coaches spoke to me, I was then, um, referred to school counselor. And I think she had a duty to report, um, just what she saw and what she was going on, uh, because she was quite concerned about my health at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so that led to me seeing my family doctor and my family getting involved and then a referral to an outpatient program at a children's hospital in Hamilton. So this happened, like this happened when you were still in 15, 16 years old. Yes, that's right. So So your family, your family knew what was going on, but outside of that, you, you kept it quite, you know, quiet outside of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Actually fair enough, you know, for sure. (laughs) And my family was a pivotal part because the therapy I did was family-based therapy. Um, oh, it's one of the most effective treatments for anorexia. Can, can you, um, can you describe what that process is? I, I haven't heard of it. Sure. Sure. Of yeah. course. Um, I mean, I hated it because I thought I was just dragging everyone else into my own issues. Um, <laughs> uh, but I can see how that family part was so important. The eating disorder was thriving in secrecy. And so my family was really important to get my eating back on track to keep me, motivated to keep me company during mealtimes, um, help hold me accountable. And even just to distract me, I think mm-hmm. the eating disorder took away so much pleasure from my life and just, you know, having my sister there to tell a joke and entertain me while I'm like slowly picking away at my meal was really, right. really helpful. But right. I, we would go in, drive whatever, an hour outside of the town, to get there because there was nothing where we're located. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was pretty disruptive for our lives. I would say like we're going, I was taken out of class and I would speak to the psychiatrist one-on-one. Um, they do sort of a medical assessment and then the whole family would come together mm-hmm. and speak with the psychiatrist. Uh, we'd have homework and 
yeah, even thinking back, I, I get a bit tense because it, it was pretty stressful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you've obviously learned about eating disorders across the board, you know, your own specific, you know, your specific kind or, or how it presents with you. Um, I, I'm assuming there's lots of different ways that eating disorders present themselves, you know, because I think, you know, for me, the common, the common conception is, oh, people start eating less and less to make, to, to, to create a body that they think looks better. Mm -hmm. um, or people keep maybe may eating more and more. I don't really, you know, I don't fully understand how it works. So there is quite a spectrum to how people, you know, um, how they, you know, sort of how the eating disorder manifests in them. Like, you, you, is there a spectrum to that? There's a, a spectrum for sure. That's, that's a good word to describe it. Um, I would say, you know, depending on your, your gender, your background, your demographics, it mm -hmm. presents a lot differently mm -hmm. as well. Um, one thing I'm noticing, especially on social media is this, this whole fitness influencer culture. Um, mm -hmm. I'm seeing a lot of problematic, like disordered eating behaviors there with such mm -hmm. a focus on, you know, weighing your food, only eating certain specific foods. Right. And this is all supposed to be for the pursuit of health but to me I'm seeing a lot of red flags and I think that's how it starts it it starts out very subtle mm -hmm. um and and then I find found it just the thoughts just really became so strong and so overpowering mm -hmm. um that it just completely controls you yeah and, and I guess what you're saying is health you know from what I from what I gather uh, health doesn't really have a body type um, health doesn't mean you're ripped and, you know, point two body fat, it, it, health can be a lot of different things. And so, you know, achieving that, I guess it's, you know, to, to get to that point, how, how long are, is this, is, is your eating disorder something that you, um, that you, it's something you constantly have to service. Are you, is it something you're on top of all the time or did you reach different stages where, you know, mm -hmm. you, you could let go a little bit or, or you didn't have to focus on it so much, you, uh, so much of the process of um, controlling it. Right. Mm -hmm. So after that family-based treatment, um, you know, I, I met all the criteria like check, 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 like all the, the medical stuff was looking great. But I think, you know, with mental illness, obviously there's a lot that happens under the surface. So even though I was presenting physically a bit different, a lot of the behaviors, I think were still there. Mm -hmm. And big life changes really impact eating disorders, disordered eating. Like it's mm -hmm. a way to try to control aspects of our life when other things feel out of control. So mm -hmm. university was really challenging. And then when the pandemic hit, um, so at this point, this was over 10 years mm -hmm. after my initial diagnosis. And honestly, it felt like overnight, right away, all these behaviors rushed back almost immediately. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah so and real I think regression. Yeah. And I think my body was just trying to protect me. Like, I think similar to what you said about anxiety, you know, eating disorders can be a coping mechanism. It's not a healthy coping mechanism, but, um, in some ways I think it was trying to protect me. And that was a really eye-opening point because I realized, you know, I, I needed to get a different sort of help as an adult. It's very different when you're a teenager going through family therapy. Right. And then yeah. here I was like living alone. Like my mom's not going to come over and sit and watch me eat dinner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's that, there's that where you have to start becoming autonomous and, and, and being fully, fully responsible for what you're going through. 
Exactly. Exactly. And then that's when I realized too, that, you know, this whole element of secrecy was really becoming burdensome. And especially over the pandemic, when I could see a lot of other people struggling, that's when I started to blog, mm-hmm. be more open about my own eating disorder. Um, and it was so overwhelming, just having strangers and like colleagues who had kids mm-hmm. with eating disorders. Yeah. It's really a lot more prevalent than we think. Yeah. I, I want to jump to the blog in a second, but I just wanted to quickly, because right off the top of the, of this, this discussion, you mentioned social anxiety. Um, and I want to know, uh, what, what does social anxiety look like for you? And um, th- does it, do you feel like it, it kind of, st- is it something that, is it, is it a protective thing? Um, I'm wondering what social, yeah, basically w- what does social anxiety look like for you or how does it present itself with you? Probably the simplest way I could put it is it's this idea that all my flaws will be revealed by other people and they'll mm. see quote unquote, the true me, right. they'll know that I'm socially anxious. I think yeah. That's also at the underlying part of it and that I'm not, you know, as as good as other people for speaking or for mm-hmm. um, presenting myself. So that's mm-hmm. it's more than just the fear of judgment. It's this fear of knowing who I actually am. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In that in that depth. So that limited your sort of your movement, your social movements where, you know, that limited your interactions with people pretty regularly I would say one thing was it meant that I I overthought and over rehearsed and just spent a lot of energy putting my or or seeing myself how others would see me rather than just living my life or how I would want to live my life yeah it was like there was always this external observer right (laughs) hanging out yeah anxiety can be so it's so isolating um, and, and it's it's so tricky in the way it starts working thoughts to me that, yeah, I feel like I'm like this, I feel like I'm this big, huge thing that everybody can see. I feel like everybody can see mm. what I'm thinking, what's going on, oh my gosh, or something wrong. Like I felt, I feel so transparent. When in, in reality, you know, I, I, I flash back to my thinking trap work that I've done with CBT, you know, I'm, I'm mind reading and catastrophizing it. And, what they're thinking um, really has nothing to do with me. Uh, but it, it, it definitely, you know, in my experience, it definitely pulls, can, can make you feel like that you're so isolated, but so exposed at the same time. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like people seeing through you, I like the way that you described that. That's exactly mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And everyone, of course, is so absorbed with their own thoughts that they're not mm-hmm. even paying attention to you. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I want to, okay, now I want to get to this blog and, and because it's amazing. Um, and I, I want to, yeah, I, I have had a chance to look over it and, um, I want to, um, sort of what, what was the impetus to get that started? When did you start it? How long have you been blogging? Have you written is writing one of your things? What, yeah, what okay. made you get going on that? Because that's <laughs> a, that's a big step for somebody little with anxiety, let alone with, you know, largely misunderstood and stigmatized eating disorder, you know? Mm. So yeah. When did you start doing that? I've toyed around with the idea of a blog for probably since 2015. 
and okay. to, in full transparency, yes, I love writing. I've been okay. <laughs> writing yeah, yeah. since yeah. I was a kid and oh, amazing. Um, That's good. I studied journalism and communications in school as well. Oh, so it's just, yeah. yeah, it was just a way of communicating that came a lot more naturally to me. I think even with social anxiety, if I was able to write something and then speak, that made me feel a lot more comfortable than just going out and mm-hmm. saying exactly what was on my mind. So it was always mm-hmm. something that I felt comfortable um, because I felt I could prepare and control uh, yeah, the messaging yeah. a little bit more. Sure. So I had always struggled with a theme for the blog. I didn't want it just to be a general lifestyle blog. And I think the pandemic showed me that I actually had something of value to share Mm -hmm. and it was just like breaking through that isolation, like just feeling, you know, I was living alone in a basement by myself and I thought the blog was a way to connect myself to others and help others feel less lonely. Mm -hmm. That's probably my main motivation because I know that feeling, you know, when I was 15 years old, blogs like this didn't exist. I wasn't even on social media. I really truly believe I was the only person with an eating disorder. (laughs) Oh yeah, which That's, which sounds ridiculous, but no, I no, not everybody that I've spoken to through this podcast, almost all of them, really felt like they were alone in what they're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's completely normal. So what? How do you how do you structure your blog? Um, what what do you decide to write about? How much is it of anxiety or or your eating disorder or? Your lifestyle. I'm really interested to hear, you know, how you how you come up with ideas, material for it. I don't ever run out of ideas. I get, I just write them down in my phone or no. That's amazing. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like you said, I think with when you're living with a mental illness, it really is always on your mind and mm-hmm. working towards mm-hmm. recovery. Um, but it started more with a focus on eating disorders, and I think it's grown to touch on different aspects. Because I've also struggled with depression um, mm. and obviously social anxiety. And I'm recognizing too, when I speak about food and body image in more general terms, I think it relates to a lot more people. Like I did one post on how I feel more comfortable working at home than being in an office environment when it comes to food. And I was so shocked by how many people resonated with this and said they just hated the diet culture ideas that existed in the office. Um, But right now I'm on a bit of a blogging break. My, my blog has actually grown into a business. So I'm I'm doing more speaking now, which is awesome because I feel like I'm reaching an even bigger audience and I'll be chatting with university students because I felt again, so, so isolated university thought I was the only one who was struggling with this. Yeah, what an amazing, amazing leap that is. So when you first started getting responses, I get, you know, what I'm wondering is how that how the blog is, because I know when I became transparent about my anxiety and depression issues, how much of a response that got from people and how it really helped me. Uh, And and it helped other people. Through your blog, I I get I take it you must get feedback um, on your blog. How's it How's it helped you in terms of your your mental struggles, your your eating disorder, and that kind of thing? Does it does it serve you in a therapeutic way? For sure, I've journaled also my whole entire life. Right. Since I was seven years old, I don't know if you can see in the back. There's a stack of journals. Oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so this almost feels like journaling, but on a bigger platform, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. I think even with journaling, it was just the idea of getting these thoughts out of your head and gaining almost like a third person perspective. Mm -hmm. And of course, just holding myself accountable too. Um, 
being so open about being in recovery, I feel that I want to stay in this place and I'm in a really great spot. And, you know, yeah. if I were to get sick again, then that would actually really impact the work that I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's changed, sure. changed my perspective in a, in a really great way. Okay. So blogging is one thing and having social anxiety is one thing. Um, but how did you make that leap into actually physically speaking in front of people? Because to me, that sounds completely <laughs> counterintuitive. Um, I, I believe it's, it would be a good thing to do in terms of exposure therapy, but what, what has that leap been like for you? Yeah. A few other folks have brought that up too. Like what? That makes no sense. Yeah. It's almost like when I do speaking, I can take on a different persona. Right. Or even when I'm blogging, sometimes it feels like I'm taking on a different persona, even though my therapist reminded me that, you know, this is still you. Yeah, um, and yeah, just to give yeah. myself more, more credit in that <laughs> yeah. sense. Good, but... one. Yeah, good point. Excellent point. <laughs> <laughs> what I like about it is I can prepare what I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. So that that element of preparedness plays into it. But also <laughs> I, I experienced recently, like my worst, worst case scenario, I was like pulling up my presentation. It was all virtual and I had my speaking notes ready to go. My computer froze. So that meant someone ah. else needed to share the presentation without my notes. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and you should see my shirt afterwards. It was just oh, drenched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. But you made it through. I did. And then after that, I was like, wait a second, I'm probably just over preparing. And I actually do know what I'm talking about. So, right. Hold on. (laughs) So, okay. So that, that, so there you have a negative, potentially negative thing turning into a positive for you in terms of realizing what it, what you, I know exactly what you're talking about because there's a people, a lot of people in general don't have an understanding of sort of the nuances and complications within anxiety because I, Outwardly, I can do a podcast, I can talk to you, I can go on TV, I can stand on a stage, I can do all that stuff, but put me in a room full of a lot of people and I start, I'm not quite the same person. I'll try and go and Mm -hmm. isolate and find one person to talk to. I feel like I have, when I'm up on a stage, I have control. Yes. I've got the microphone, you know, nobody can talk back and it's just me interacting with, you know, almost this blur of people. So it's, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think, that, I think, you know, your, your example is important to let people know that anxiety, uh, just because you have social anxiety doesn't mean you aren't able to go and, and talk. I've talked to broadcasters yeah. who have bad anxiety, but put them on TV and, and you would have no idea. For sure. It presents in so many different ways. I've heard mm-hmm. a lot of people too, you know, have driving anxiety. Like there's just certain situations that cause flare-ups. Grocery stores is a big one for me too. Is that um, right? Mm-hmm. Now, so is that a tie-on? Is that that sounds like a tie-in between social anxiety and food? Is, oh, yes. is that a, is that a fair assumption? Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's I just find them so overwhelming too, and the pandemic played into this as well because I already didn't really like grocery shopping, and then it was like, okay, now you have to stand in la- in line. I was living downtown Toronto, so like two yeah. hours. Mm-hmm. I might be exaggerating slightly. A long time. You have to stand in line a long time. Felt like two hours. <laughs> <laughs> and this like jam-packed grocery store stock was running low um it was it just there was I guess this idea too that we were running out of food like the scarcity mindset was, was playing into yeah, it yeah yeah a lot Ho- as- the hoarding mindset mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. 
And just wow. the fear of also just getting sick too, because my health anxiety skyrocket, like all these other right. types of anxieties right. all bundled right. together. Yeah. And you, but you, yeah, you still persevered through that. Yes. And also yeah. again, uh, credit to my therapist for, for being, you know, out of the box and suggesting this. She's like, why don't you try ordering food to your house? You know, why don't you try mm -hmm. these alternative, why don't you pick a grocery store that you actually enjoy going to? This never crossed my mind. I think <laughs> with a lot of mental illness too, it's still like black or white. Like there's only one way of doing things. Um, mm. And if you've incorporated something into that, what you consider to be a healthy regime, it's hard to think of other ways that you could possibly do it. You know, me, I go to bed at 10, but I could go to bed at 9.30 and it would be just fine. Or I could go to bed at 10.30, it'd just be fine. But no, 10 is what keeps me completely balanced all the time. That's right, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah, finding, you know, being able to find that, you know, that there's some flexibility in the tools that we use, it, you know, exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah, yeah, just exactly, yeah. Being more flexible. Um, what else has helped? Um, or just going with other people too. That, of mm -hmm. course, it wasn't able to do that at the beginning mm -hmm. of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. It seems like the, the pandemic in some ways, you know, it served people with anxiety in good and bad ways. Uh, you know, you say you, you don't sound like you're really a go to the office kind of person. So, Never again. <laughs> so, so there you go. You, you, you have that flexibility now. And it sounds like things are going definitely in more of a, you know, you're going to be guiding your your life, you're going to be working for yourself kind of way. I, I don't know if this is exclusive to what you do or not, but it certainly can. It, it's, it's a matter of taking a net, taking that negative and turning it into something positive for sure. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Um, I've, this is what I do full-time as of this year, which is absolutely terrifying wow. just to even say that yeah, out loud. Yeah. 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 You don't want to jinx it, right? <laughs> exactly. And yeah. even like, I think the whole like going from being fully masked to like sometimes wearing masks was mm -hmm. really, really anxiety inducing. And I, and I've read too, there's been research has shown um, people with body image struggles as well. They really enjoyed the mask. Like yeah. they felt that, that it was like a protective element. And I'm hearing mm -hmm. too from teachers that they're, they're kids that just would rather keep it on. And I, I totally understand where they're coming from. I get that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're, when you're up, when you're speaking, um, what, what's your, you know, what's your, if you can, you know, tell me what your, your sort of general message is when you're up there talking to people. There's a few. So mm -hmm. one is addressing that younger version of myself that had no one else to look at and look up to right. and see that, that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I, I truly believe that this eating disorder was going to be a, a lifelong illness that impacted me, you know, for decades and decades. Fortunately, yeah. it was it was caught early on. So yeah. the chance of recovery is a lot higher within those mm -hmm. first few years. Mm -hmm. And the second message is of that greater community, knowing that it's not just you that has these challenges. We all have a body. We all have body image. We all in some way can relate to someone that has an eating disorder mm -hmm. um, because we're, we're consuming food. Diet culture is is surrounds us fat phobia is everywhere there's yeah. there's some element of eating disorder culture that i think all of us can can latch on to and the mm -hmm. third one is that you you cannot know what someone is going through by by judging their appearance it's less than six percent of people with eating disorders are medically underweight uh, yeah. you, you yeah. never know 
what someone is going through. And on that line, I'm a firm believer that you shouldn't make comments on other folks' bodies. Even oh. if it's well-intentioned, just stay oh away my from gosh. it. I, I completely agree with that because I associate being thin as being unhealthy. Because when I would go into my points of depression, mm. I would lose weight like crazy so fast. And so to me, that was unhealthy. So when somebody yeah. said, oh, you've lost weight, or you know, even if somebody's saying, oh, you lost weight, um, I found that very upsetting. But people didn't understand it because in our society, losing weight is good. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it, that I, I didn't take the time to go around correcting people. I did on occasion, correct people, you know, by saying, uh, you know, just to let you know that, that I, I find that to be kind of upset. And, and I, I'm like you, it's like, say, hello, maybe say, how are you? But this whole, this whole culture of sort of judging people by their weight um, and how they look and whether they look quote healthy or not healthy mm -hmm. is really is really challenging. And I think, you know, I, I think you're bang on that. It's best to avoid it, you know? Yes. You know, very problematic. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, what you're doing is absolutely amazing. I, I, I am really, you know, interviewing people like you, it's so incredible to see people who have made that transition to being advocates, uh, mm -hmm. because it's very important to, if you can, like you can be on stage or blog that you use your voice and, and, it, it's tremendous. Like I, you know, I thank you on behalf of the whole mental health world that you're doing it because it, trust me, it is making a difference. That means a lot. I appreciate yeah. that. Oh, yeah, yeah. For sure. It feels unreal at some points, right? Yeah. But <laughs> takes it's, time. It's real. It's real. I feel <laughs> the same when I'm doing a podcast. I, I just love doing this because I get to meet people you like you from all spectrums of, of the mental health world. And it's amazing. I want people to know that it's uh, chloegrande.com is where you can find the blog. And your Instagram and Twitter are both Chloe She Grows. That's C H L O S H E Grows. Good handles. Thank you. <laughs> A okay. little rhyme going on there. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for taking the time. I really look forward to chatting with you in the future. And and best of luck with all of your future endeavors, your speaking engagements, your blog. It, it's absolutely fabulous. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me again. Okay. Take care. I know. Thank you for listening to our anxiety stories. If you'd like to support this podcast or Anxiety Canada, go to anxietycanada.com.